Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by author Isabel Cañas to talk about her debut novel, The Hacienda. So Isabel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I'm so excited to chat today. I am very excited to have you on. This was one of my most anticipated releases, so... Oh, this, this warms my heart. <laughs> I love hearing that. It's it's surreal and it gets to me every time. Yeah, like listen, I do, um, you know, new releases episodes at the beginning of the year and then in the summer to do like second half. And like when I saw this coming out, I was like, this was made for me, me personally. Um, so thank you so much for putting it out into the world. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Honestly, writing this I could go on and on and on about what writing this book meant to me, but that would mean I would be rambling. (laughs) I would ramble quite a lot when it came to it. For listeners who don't know about it, can you tell them a little bit about The Hacienda? Absolutely. Um, It is a gothic horror. It's pitched as Rebecca meets Mexican Gothic, um, or you could say Rebecca meets The Haunting of Hill House with a a hearty dash of Fleabag season two, if you will. It's about a young woman named Beatriz who makes, uh, who chooses to enter into an advantageous marriage with a widower um, about whom she knows very little, except that his first wife died under mysterious circumstances in order to get herself out of a tight financial situation. And so she moves from Mexico City to his dilapidated country estate, Hacienda San Isidro. And when she's living there alone, discovers that it is profoundly haunted. And no one seems to believe her. So she seeks help uh, from the church in town and finds it in the form of the young priest, Padre Andres, who has many dark secrets of his own. As I said before, I really enjoyed it. Um, I did love the Fleabag season two mention. I do have to say, I sometimes cast books mentally when I'm reading it so I can watch things play out. And I did cast, it might be an unimaginative casting choice because he has already played a hot Mexican priest, but Alfonso Herrera. Oh, really? I was thinking like young Gael Gar- Garcia Bernal in my head when I was writing, but I also <laughs> accept this this reading casting. Like, I definitely accept this. Yeah, he did great on a the unfortunately short-lived Exorcist TV show. Um, but I was like, yep, yeah, this is who I'm casting in this role. Have you already played something similar to this? Sure. But here you are in the movie in my head. <laughs> Daryl Alfonso, I, let me get you in touch with my film agent. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Ozark wrapped up. Like, you're good now. Go, go. Yeah, so it's definitely, it gets pitched as, um, it's been interesting hearing this book pitched by my publisher because I wrote it intending it to be horror. Um, I knew from the start and I, I knew I wanted it to be gothic. I wanted it to have the classic archetypal trappings of the gothic, like the big house, the scary big house, mm-hmm. um, the young woman, uh, madness w- woven in there, a haunting, real or metaphorical, uh, pick your own adventure. But um, it gets pitched as suspense. It gets pitched sometimes. It gets shelved in thriller and mystery sometimes, which is interesting to me. And of course, it's historical. So I think I'm lucky in that um, I wrote along the fault lines with many genre divides. And so I think it will appeal to readers who like historical fiction, readers who like supernatural haunting type horror. There's a baby bit of body horror in there. I didn't think it was too bad. And then my older sister read the book and was like, Isabel, ew. 
But yeah, it definitely, it's very suspenseful. I wouldn't call it a thriller, but um, it has uh, that heightened tension that I think readers of suspenseful novels, novels and thrillers and horror might enjoy. I think so. Yeah, it has, like you said, all the other elements that I think people that don't usually read horror would be interested in. And I mean... I will say it's not subtle horror. Like I would say it's horror. Like the super the supernatural hauntings are are there. Like stuff happens, stuff goes on, and it's not like I heard a voice. It's in my head, I guess. You know, like we're walking past it. Like I feel like it leans into it. So I would say this is a good thing because I think it's going to get people out of their comfort zones. I hope so. I hope so. Bring them over to the dark side. <laughs> you come for the gothic. Come for the hot priest. Stay for the horror. Yeah gothic hot priest and then get a little bit of horror on your way out you'll like it so as we were talking about this earlier but usually when i talk to authors it's like before their book is out in the world so it's a lot of like uh i'm trying to like bury my head in the sand and not look at goodreads and not look at anything right now uh but now that you can see that your book is out in the world and you can see how it's doing how has that been it's been wild i am really taken aback by how positive a reception it has gotten. I think many writers are afraid of how their books will be received. I think I was a little scared um, because going through my publishing journey as um, a Latina author, I received a lot of rejection and I received a lot of rejection that was like, some of it was worded in ways where I was like, this is just a little weird and icky. I don't super love this. And I was really worried when Mexican, when Mexican Gothic came out in June of 2020, I believe, um, I had already written the Hacienda and I was terrified that publishers were going to say, oh, we already have our Mexican horror book. Yeah. You know, I was really worried about tokenization. Um, and I was happily proven extremely wrong. I think, um, I really admire Sylvia Moreno Garcia and I think our books are really different. I think I really lean into the supernatural in, in the Hacienda and I think readers love it. And I have a hot priest. So, so I'm not saying like my book is better, but I am saying it has a hot priest. So that is <laughs> something to take into consideration. Although we do, um, I often get comped alongside Mexican Gothic, of course. And I think because of um, themes that underlie Mexican, modern Mexican history um, since uh, it became a republic. Um, I think there are similarities in the ways that we deal with questions of colorism and racism and class at different inter intersections. But my book is set in the 19th century and definitely leans into that aesthetic. Like, is there a scene where the heroine runs through the rain at midnight in a white nightgown? Yeah. Do we to. absolutely embrace you that? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but seeing uh, the reception has been really incredible. I stay off Goodreads. I, it is a place for readers. I know I do not belong there. And, um, so one thing that my husband does bless him is he will occasionally like scroll through, find a five-star review and read me a nice like little oh. snippet of it. So I don't even look at it. I don't even look at it, but he reads it aloud to me. Um, and it's been really heartwarming. It's been really cool because I think one thing that I, didn't know I was writing about when I wrote this book was universal fears because I have always been afraid of the dark. I am, um, <laughs> I'm a parody of myself. Like, do I write horror? Yes. Am I the biggest wuss that has ever walked this earth? Also? Yes. <laughs> I am. 
I remember I saw the ring when I was in high school and I slept with the lights on for like weeks. I remember I just watched the trailer for Paranormal Activity when I was in high school and I was freaking out. Like I have a very low tolerance. I have a very active imagination. And I think I often fall, become it's a victim because I'm very scared of things. And so I knew that one day my fear of the dark would turn into a book. And I think it's been really amazing to, to, to see how readers have responded to that. Because I think the Hacienda is a very specific kind of story in many ways. It's both familiar, but it has a specific setting. It's informed by specific history. It's informed by a specific culture or cultures and a specific religious experience. But the themes that it plays with are more universal. And like a fear of the dark, a fear of being trapped in a house is something that became very universal in the early days of the pandemic when I finished writing this book. Like I wrote the second half of this book when I was in lockdown in April of 2020 in a 400 square foot studio in Brooklyn, you know, trapped mm -hmm. in this little box, afraid of a force that I could not see, that I could not control and that I did not understand. And I think that like, in a way, the Hacienda became a relic of that early pandemic experience <laughs> in a way that I didn't realize that I was writing at the time. Um, but I think a lot of, a lot more people are afraid of big, spooky, creaky houses than they like to admit. And I'm like, welcome. We have lots to talk about. <laughs> I love a haunted house, first of all. That is like one of my favorite horror tropes. Um, and it's always, you know, so much more than the house. I think people are like, this is a straightforward, or this is what a straightforward haunted house story looks like. But it's like, even in the most straightforward haunted house story, there is always more to the story than just like, there's a spooky house. Exactly. Like, it must be a vehicle for something more. I think I read, what did I read? I read Hell House by, it's like a classic haunted house story. But I think what left me, I left the book feeling kind of hollow because I think it lacked that like deeper story. It was like, yeah, these horrific things are happening and it's very scary on the surface, but like, why are we here? And I think maybe this is why I, I gravitate towards horror written by women specifically. Because if you think about the haunting of Hill House, like that is a commentary on female agency. Like we're in the haunted house and we're with the protagonist um, for a reason. And it's not just like, also, that book is a, a masterclass in the power of the first page and voice. I've reread it twice before starting to write this book. Oh, wow. um, it's incredible. It's so good. But yeah, I think I uh, exactly the haunted house must be it must be more than some of its walls. And I think the Hacienda, what I wanted to really drive home with the Hacienda was and with the title of the Hacienda, which my publisher picked and which I have become fond of. Um, is the fact, even though I always want to say la hacienda, <laughs> the hacienda, is because is the fact that it's not just about the house, but it's about the institution of the hacienda and its role in racial and socioeconomic disparity in the immediately post-colonial period in Me Mexico's history. And I play with a lot of that stuff Yeah. in this book because the historical period really informs um, the characters' backstories and how they move through the world and what they're afraid of. It really determines their fears and what they're afraid of losing and what's at stake for them. So a house is more than the sum of its walls. Definitely. And yeah, those fears were interesting to see throughout the different characters and their different varying levels of privilege throughout the story. It was very interesting. And I will say as someone uh, 
who is Mexican and probably should have uh, had a little deeper knowledge of this part in history. Like it was very informative to me. I learned a lot. I learned a lot when I was writing it. Like if you grew up in the U.S., then the chances are that like you did not learn any of this history when you were in school. Like we learned nothing of it. And I think those of us in the diaspora are very like, I don't know about your family, but there's been like quite a lot of like assimilation and Americanization of Mm -hmm. my family in Texas. And I feel like, um, I feel cut off from a lot of things. And I think this is an experience that echoes uh, with readers like us. And I really wanted to write a book for them. And I think this really comes to the fore in the character of Andres, who feels cut off from the language that his mother spoke. Like, yeah, he can understand it, but he can't speak it. And so when he's talking with his cousin Paloma, um, who speaks Nahuatl, or what we now call Nahuatl, which is an exonym. And in the 19th century, someone who spoke this indigenous language would probably call it Mexicano, Mexicano, because they were Mexica. Anyway, uh, that's a rabbit hole that we could dive down, but I don't know if we have time for it. But I wanted his relationship with the language to echo, to be an echo of my own relationship with Spanish and my experience of being a child of two cultures, where I grew up absolutely plagued by questions of identity and belonging and faith in ways that really are embodied by the character of Padre Andreas. I think he, he, his character and the way he moves through the book, like writing him was a very vulnerable for, thing for me to do. I don't think I've written about a lot of those like fears and identity crises <laughs> that I've held like very close to my chest um, my entire life in such a way, but that's the power of fiction. And I think it's the power of genre fiction, especially is that you can come at topics that are very close and sensitive to you from a different angle. And I think if somebody else like me reads this book and feels seen by watching this character and his struggle with like the language that his mother spoke and just how does he fit into his family? How does he belong? How can he fulfill his roles in society best? Um, yeah, I hope, I, ho- I hope that resonates with readers because it, it, I put a lot of myself into that guys. <laughs> Yeah, writing is very, from what I've heard from speaking to authors, very therapeutic, a lot of like purging yourself onto the page through your characters and through these actions. Um, So that is fascinating. And yeah, I mean, there's also the aspect of um, the other traditions that he has to hide as he becomes a priest. I don't know if we want to get into that. I know that is. It's on the back back cover copy, but Padre Andres is a witch. Yeah. (laughs) When I pitch this book um, and I'm being cheeky, I I, I sometimes say this book has witches where you least expect them. That is true. That is probably the the last place on a a few different levels that you would expect. Yeah. It's like not in the church. Exactly. Well, he's hiding in plain sight. And I think you said in the back that magic system was fictitious. It was just made up for the book. Yeah, definitely. I... Um, I definitely wanted to, um, create a magic system. I am, before I started writing horror, I wrote exclusively fantasy. And so I think one thing that's interesting about historical fiction and fantasy is that they both require the same set of skills as a writer. You have to do a lot of world building. And I kind of brought that sensibility to this novel. And one thing that can make world building powerful is have it reflect or be an echo of, um, your character's arc. And so I wanted Padre Andres's magic to be, to echo or reflect um, 
his, <laughs> to be flippant, his identity crisis, but the conflict that he feels being the child of a European, a white European man and an indigenous woman, he has inherited magic from both sides of his family and they are in conflict with one another. And he fears one more than the other. And his arc is about accepting who he is and embracing um, his unique role in his community based on those his heritage and those two sides to his magic. Um, even though he definitely does, he's a bit of a control freak, honestly. And I, I was definitely writing again from a place of <laughs> hashtag write what you know, but also um, I think parts of ourselves as writers definitely work their way into characters that we write in ways that are sometimes unexpected. But I was like, of course, he's fearful of this thing that he does not understand. And yeah. he knows, even though he says like, and maybe he's being a bit flippant. Um, when Beatrice says, I just find it a little surprising that a priest would be, or that a witch would become a priest uh, because hello, that is a bit surprising. He says, is there, is there a vocation more natural for a man who hears devils? Like, of course yeah. this makes sense. Um, but I think he does, he's in constant conflict with himself and that made him very interesting to write. Um, I really enjoyed writing him and it, it's so satisfying and it fills me with incredible joy to hear people tell me that they really liked him. I was like, oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, I did really like him. I don't know. There was a lot of fun elements to the story and I think kind of something in there for everyone even people that come in here for the romance you know there's like the like like them being in like the closet in the church like talking I was like so fun so one of my friends said wait did this just slip into rom-com territory <laughs> you know this like juxtaposition oh no we gotta hide like mm -hmm. did I I wrote that scene I loved writing that scene I really enjoyed writing that scene I enjoyed writing the scene where they're talking to each other in the confessional I really enjoyed that um I think anyone were you raised Catholic I was not no but my mom was. Yeah, there's the like, they're very specific vibes that I feel mm -hmm. like if you were raised Catholic um, or you have experience with Catholicism, like the echoes, or if you've spent time in like Spanish colonial churches, as I did when I was living in Southern California as a kid, like the echo of footsteps, smell of the church, like hiding in a confessional, the darkness of it all, like ah, the theater of mass, it's just so extra yes. and so deeply superstitious that um, it was really fun to play with. It was really fun to play with. That's cool. What part of Southern California? I was in Orange County uh, uh -huh. for a while. Yeah, my I moved around a lot as a kid. Like every four years we moved to a new house, which is wild wow. and which uh -huh. I think it gave me a lot of exposure to different kinds of houses, which is how I think I grew to be afraid of some of them. <laughs> there are definitely some houses that we lived in uh, when I was a kid that just did not have great vibes. And yeah. Um, I developed a lot of theories, like little half-baked theories that I then, um, well, not half-baked, actually very thoroughly baked and thought about theories that ended up in this book about dwellings and the kind of, um, the kind of people who pass through them and what they leave behind emotionally in terms of energy. I don't know. I could get really woo-woo about it and maybe this is the correct place, but. <laughs> so were you as a kid coming up with these? I was because I just didn't have another way of articulating why I felt uncomfortable in certain spaces. You know, a home is meant to be a place of refuge. It's meant to be a shelter. It's meant to be, um, especially homes that families live in for a long time are heirlooms of that family's experience. You know, memories are created there. 
Uh, they're dreamt about by the people who have lived in them and who leave them. They're very interesting places. I think houses hold a lot of um, emotional and spiritual energy for people in ways that we don't often realize. And I think we all spent a lot of time thinking about the spaces that we lived in during the early pandemic days when yeah. we spent a lot more time between the four walls than we had before. And maybe we're moving out of that space and it's more comfortable now. Um, but um, I, I think because I lived in so many different houses, I really was able to compare and contrast like how I felt in certain spaces versus others. Um, like I do make a point when I'm searching for apartments now as an adult to be very intentional <laughs> about like the vibes of a place when I walk in. Like there are some places that I looked at when I was first moving to New York City where I was like, nope, absolutely not. Um, definitely feels off to me. But when I was a, a kid, I think like four, like five years old, we moved into a house um, in the northern suburbs of Chicago that was built in the 1920s and that my aunt has since independently confirmed was extremely haunted. And I'm like, thank you. Validate. I knew it. I knew because it. I knew it. I knew it. Little baby me knew it. Because little baby me had to sit in time out at the bottom of the basement stairs when she misbehaved, which was often. And um that's rough. It was it was it made me the writer I am today, guys. It really <laughs> allowed me to meditate on what scared me and really, you know, stare at the darkness and have it stare back at me. And stare it did. I often felt quite watched in that house in a way that wigged me out. And yeah. I think, yeah, I still dream about that house a lot. And it's really interesting to see which houses come up in, in my dreams because I've lived in so many. Um, but yeah, I definitely drew on that experience quite a lot while writing The Hacienda. I think dreams also play a part in this book. Beatrice has a lot of nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Those were fun to write. I'd never written dreams like that before. And it was like, very freeing and very scary. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, dream logic, you can do anything. There are no barriers. So there are no barriers. And I think it was also really good for character development. Um, mm -hmm. because there's one nightmare where Beatrice has where she's just met Padre Andres, but in her dream, she finds like her sheets shredded as if by claws in her bedroom. And she mm -hmm. calls for Padre Andres to say, like, oh hey, you need to come look at this because it to, in her dream logic, it makes perfect sense that he would need to come see this. And I think that like slowly builds the bricks for their emotional intimacy throughout the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know, because I think one thing that was really fun about this book was balancing the romance and the horror, because these are not two, I don't believe these are elements that should be in opposition to one another in books. I think I would love to read more horror that has romantic elements in it, um, because I've first and foremost, very drawn to horror to romance stories when I read. But um, I think horror provides um, a unique and uniquely stressful kind of situation that allows characters to bond much more quickly than they would otherwise. And so like Beatriz and Andres become very, very close very quickly based on the um, psychologically stressful situation in which yeah. they find themselves, they must rely on one another and form a partnership. And um, when one gets injured, the other takes care of them, you know, which is another trope that I am just garbage for. <laughs> you know, when we're running through the rain in the nightgown, we're running to someone, you know, yeah. we're running to someone for help. So it was 
I, I'm really glad that you enjoyed this book because it's so full of things that I just like <laughs> my little garbage heart just really <laughs> loves the shit out of some of these tropes. And it makes me so happy to hear like, that's the, been the great thing about having this book come out into the world. It's like, I'm discovering my people, people who like reading the same things as me. Cause I wrote this book because I wanted to read it and it's reaching readers and they're popping up and DMing me and telling me that, you know, they're Mexican-American and the representation meant a lot to them, or those are the messages that mean the most to me, honestly, they really hit home. I mean, yeah, like that's a big reason why I was very excited about it. And I know you were talking about earlier about it getting compared to Mexican Gothic, but I mean, as someone who loved both books, very different stories, they go in very different directions. And I know it gets a lot of cops to Rebecca as well, because it is like a woman marrying like an older man she doesn't really know very well and like going to his estate. Um, but I would say from there goes a very different direction. <laughs> We're talking about very real ghosts here. Although I remember reading Rebecca and being like, but what if she is a ghost? But what if, but what if she is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She felt like, I think that's the powerful thing about Rebecca is that the dread becomes so intense and the atmosphere becomes so intense that I was like questioning my own, you know, alongside the unnamed Mrs. DeWinter, um, yeah. I was uh, questioning my own sanity. Like, am I supposed to be expecting a real ghost? Is that where this book is taking me? So maybe not questioning my sanity, but questioning the genre, certainly. What kind of reader expectations should I be having in this book? And reader, I was a bit disappointed when there were not actual ghosts. I had the same reading experience because I know a lot of horror readers love Rebecca. So I kind of went into it from that angle. I'm like, oh, so this is a spooky story. I mean, I still loved it. It's still like a beautiful, wonderful piece of literature. But yeah, like the lack, I'm like, oh, there's not like, the house isn't haunted. What a ripoff. <laughs> I came in here and all I got was a stupid t-shirt, you know? Yeah. I was looking for a ghost story and I didn't find one. Um, it's like, great story. Could use a ghost though. Thank could you. use a ghost though. <laughs> Something, there's a few things I like to ask guests that come on the show. One of them is a chilling obsession or something that they've been enjoying lately in horror. I would say um, I've been binging season three of Stranger Things with my husband. I don't know if this counts strictly as horror, but season three, there's some gnarly monsters going on in there. I think the, in terms of like suspense and dread, it's not as like, the mystery isn't as um, intense as season one. Like I think season one is a work of art. It was deeply enjoyable. I didn't think I was gonna like it. My husband was like, you gotta watch it, you gotta watch it, you gotta watch it. And I'm like, I hate the eighties. You know, it's just not my vibe. That's a bold, like, a bold statement. I know it's a controversial statement, but it's just not my vibe guys. Like I, I mean, changed my mind and maybe Stranger Things has, um, I enjoyed it immensely. So watching that, I'm also reading House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson, which comes out in September. Okay. Uh, her first book is called The Year of the Witching. And it is, it's kind of like, historically informed fantasy where it's dark fantasy the vibe is kind of like puritan new england-ish it is fantasy secondary world but that's the vibe there are monsters in the woods there's witchcraft there are plagues and a young woman um of mixed heritage who occupies a precarious position in society needs to uh lean into her witchcraft to solve to rescue and save the people she cares about in her community. It's a really powerful book. And it like, the conclusion is like, it's cinematic. 
it's got like if you liked the chilling adventures of sabrina Ooh, but like okay. mash it up with like the witch and like other more puritan based type things like there's like Say going no into the woods there's like I'm there already. Female energy and the power of it and like the inherent witchiness of it. You know, there's mud, there's blood, there's woods, there's goats. Oh, it's great. I love it. So her next book is called uh, House of Hunger and it's different. It's more gothic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more, uh, it plays with like the society is more city-based. So it's not like woodsy type folk horror. Um, and this elite, it's about this woman who enters this elite society as like a serving woman and um, to this countess who uh, drinks blood. And so there's like this whole society, like elite society built, like this decadent dark society built around like there's drinking blood. Is this- Anyway, there's like a mystery. Someone might get hurt. I'm not too far in it, but I'm definitely finishing it soon. And I love it. Uh, so those are my two horror obsessions lately. Oh, very good. I still have to read The Year of the Witching, but that has been on my TBR. And The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Meets the Witch is definitely one way to get me on board. Take Prudence from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and put her in The Witch. Okay. I just, it's so good. It's so good. Yes. Well, I'll have to keep my eye out for both of those. Um, And then Another tradition that we have on the podcast is we ask all our guests for a final girl song. There is a Spotify playlist where we have everyone's answers. And it's funny, everyone's like definition of what a final girl song is, is different. So what well, is Well, I think mine will actually tell you a lot about Beatriz's character if you haven't read the book. Um, so the song is called Mala Leche by Kami. Uh, the artist's name is spelled C-A-M-I, and it's mala leche, which literally translates to sour milk, but it can mean like a bad attitude or, um, yeah, like a bad attitude or bad humor. And so the song is about um, about the singer saying like, hoy dejaré de tu mala leche. Like, I am done with your bad attitude. I'm burying it. I'm over it. I'm going to be free. And so I listened to the song on loop when I was writing the ending of um, the Hacienda. Beatriz, unlike, I think, I wrote Beatriz in conversation with Rebecca, in conversation with The Haunting of Hill House, and in confrontation with it, because Mm -hmm. I wanted her to fight back. I wanted to read a heroine who would not back down without a fight, a heroine who says, not tonight, you bitch, to to the haunting that is plaguing her. And so this is a song that kind of embodies that fighting spirit. I love that. That sounds like it fits perfectly uh, on the playlist. So I will be sure to add it. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on today and chatting with me about the Hacienda. It was a pleasure, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people find you online? Um, IsabelCanas.com, I-S-A-B-E-L-C-A-N-A-S, has um, info on my books, my newsletter, uh, my short stories, and I most frequently haunt Instagram at IsabelCanas underscore. And as you mentioned earlier, Stephanie, I can also be found on TikTok occasionally. I'll go on like posting (laughs) binges where you can see me at my most unhinged and less manicured than I am on Instagram. And my handle there is IsabelCanas author. That's what it's for. I love it. It is to capture like that feral energy that we all have. Yes. Yes. I embrace it wholeheartedly. (laughs) I love it. Um, Listeners, the Hacienda is out in the world now. So if you want to, after this episode, you can go get yourself a copy. No wait. No wait needed. (laughs) All right. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on TikTok at Books in the Freezer. And you can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. One of them is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com. There is a one, three, and a five dollar level with all kinds of different perks like early episode releases, group chats, um, getting to know episode topics before they come out, and getting to ask guests questions because you know who the guest is going to be before I record the episode and things like that. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, you can check that out at patreon.com com slash books in the freezer another way to support the podcast is to use the amazon link in the bio and do normal amazon shopping like you would normally do things that people have bought recently using the link include a dead sea mud mask looks like a face mask and some swim shorts so yeah i mean the possibilities are endless thank you all of you for using that link a small percentage of that does go to help the podcast Another way to help out the podcast without spending any money is to leave a review on a site like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or to share about it on social media, tell your friends about it, anything like that. Word of mouth is huge for small indie podcasts like this one. Thank you so much for all of you who have taken the time to do that already. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Instagram at that's what she read and that's that's with two A's and on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That is L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. So thank you so much and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. Mm -hmm.